Hello and welcome to the podcast. This week, I'm sharing a conversation that Kristen Coyote May and I had about Artemis. I've really been reconnecting to her, my very first goddess, and also my namesake. Cynthia is an epithet of Artemis, Kynthos in Greek. I've been doing a lot of personal reclamation of different aspects, soul retrieval work, and I wrote this little poem to Artemis as we were exploring Artemis to record the conversation. And there's so much in that poem. It just continues to to speak to me as I go deeper into my own soul retrieval journey and, uh, you know, priestessing others through the process. I hope you enjoy our conversation. If you are interested in joining Covina, I'll put the links in the show notes. Hail Artemis and her wild mysteries of the moon. Hello and welcome. Today we are going to be discussing um, a goddess that's very near and dear to me. In fact, she was my first love, Artemis. Of course, we may know her as the fierce huntress, an emblem of independence, of staying outside of cultural norms, of returning to the wild. We may know that she's associated with deer and dogs and the moon. She is a goddess that brings, at least to me personally, the wild mysteries of freedom, rebellion, resisting the status quo. And yet when we look at Artemis's history, we find that she was a very important goddess to the ancient Greeks and in ancient Asia Minor, that she was venerated perhaps above all other goddesses for a really extended period of time in those areas. So we're going to be diving into the history of Artemis worship, um, some of the major themes from the ancient myths about her and who Artemis is to us personally and who Artemis is in kind of the modern greater thinking in the pagan and witch world, but also in other writings, because we can't talk about Artemis without bringing in feminist perspectives as well. There's a lot to Artemis. I've talked about Artemis many, many times in conjunction to Hecate. This is the very first time we are dedicating an entire conversation that focuses on Artemis. And of course, you may also know her by her Latin name, which is Diana. Even today, Artemis is never far from the main, the heartbeat of culture. Isn't there like there's a satellite or something off doing a probe that's called Artemis and certainly you know, the spirit of Diana in the form of Princess Diana, when we look at, at Artemis as an archetype that gets represented, we can see that she's still with us today in so many different ways. Artemis is so important. So get comfy, get your candle if you have one. Um, and 
get ready for this conversation about the most fascinating archer, Artemis. So let's begin as we always do with our simple ceremony. Releasing anything that's blocking or binding us. Letting go of the chains that bind. I think for me, Artemis is always about personal liberation. And then casting the circle around us. Artemis certainly is a very, very protective goddess. And connecting to the spirit of Artemis. I actually wrote a little poem. I've been thinking a lot about Artemis, you know, in the weeks since we decided that we would do a whole conversation dedicated to her. And as is my habit, I spend a couple of hours every night after dark. I'm a very lunar person and do my best thinking when the moon is out. And thinking back on all my years of association with Artemis, which goes way back to when I was a teenager, so that's many, many years, decades, I was thinking about the spirit of Artemis. So our invocation for today is this little poem, which is very much a work in progress. It is, nights like tonight, she finds me, slipping in through a crack in the curtains, riding her pale moonlight, it is nights like tonight that I long to be her, to have no familiarity with words like diagnosis, mortgage, and grief. It is nights like tonight she reminds me of who I was before and who I could be, shooting her arrows into my heart, putting the wild back in me. Hell. Artemis. So let's begin by just sharing our personal understanding and association with Artemis. For me, like I said, she was my first goddess. I discovered or was led by forces greater than myself to a poem from the 1600s that was called an ode to Cynthia, which was Cynthia, of course, is a epithet for Artemis. And it really, this idea of a wild lunar goddess who was mysterious and free, really, really just like she shot her arrow into my heart at that moment, you know, and I was, I will forever be, no matter how mature and, uh, you know, Hecate-like that I am wise and, you know, doing all of these things as adulting. I think Hecate is very much a goddess of adulting in some ways. Um, there'll always be that part of me that is Artemis that wants that freedom and to not know the ways of the mundane adult world. That's it. And I, it's precious to me, you know, that part of me. Um, I don't know, May, what's your relationship with Artemis or slash Diana? So, yeah, I mean, to me, I was thinking about this a lot because like you, she was very influential for me when I was young, um, when I was a teenager, actually even earlier than that. Um, I have been obsessed with the Greek myths since I was a child, thanks to, you know, Clash of the Titans and all of those other wonderful 80s influences. <laughs> but um, 
Artemis to me has always symbolized freedom and sovereignty, I think more so than any other goddess. And um, I find myself longing for that in my middle age, you know, and trying to reclaim some of that wildness of youth. So, um, yeah, she's pretty special to me. She's so special. I think maybe even as you get, as, as I get older, she becomes more special because she's also connected to my youth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of reverence for like the youth that was or the youth that never happened, you know, and all of that business. There's, there's so much to her. Okay. Kristen, what are your thoughts on Artemis? So I may be the odd one out. And it's interesting that Ar Artemis wasn't a very prominent goddess for me until I found Hecate. Hmm. And um, it was during a meditation. Um, I had an experience where Artemis shot me through the back with an arrow as she does with her straight shooting arrows <laughs> and um she was always kind of like lurking in the periphery for me you know and I kind of realized like that sort of is the nature of Artemis like she kind of is sort of past that threshold of the civilized world you know and I've been thinking about like the meaning of these arrows and like in a lot of ways they're almost like um arrows of truth and also opening and it was like you said in your poem like it just resonates so strongly with me it was like like an opening to my own wildness, you know, and um, my relationship with Artemis is still unfolding. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's it's still very like magical and mysterious. And yeah, I'm really, you know, into Artemis right now. Well, I think that she's like that, that yeah. she is kind of always I, I, aloof is perhaps not the best word, but she's never quite if we are safe and tucked into our homes yeah it's like she is like that pale moonbeam that just slides in and when i connect with artemis it's like when i'm in the woods here even now in my aged self if i'm in the woods and i you know speak her name i can i can feel the spirit of artemis um certainly as the huntress but there's so many deer here right the, the huntress aspects of her and I think the huntress aspect is really interesting because I think that can be one that's challenging for us to take on, uh, you know, especially, you know, most of us are far removed from, you know, having to call animals to feed ourselves, even if we still eat animals in different ways, whether it's cheese or eggs, in my case, mm -hmm. you know, whatever it is that we're, we don't, we're, we're disconnected from the needing to call animals in order to survive. Mm -hmm. But there's also the more mythic aspects of the, the more symbolic aspects of the huntress. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking of Taylor Swift's great song, The Archer. Um, and, you know, like being the archer and what that means, like in your own life, if, if you are the archer. Like, mm -hmm. like you were saying, May, about personal sovereignty. Like if you were the one with a bow and the arrow, you are the one making the decisions. Right. So we, we're going to dive into a little bit of the history of Artemis, just to kind of give us a context that although our personal experiences of Artemis really line up with each other's, this idea that she's associated with the wild, um, she's often, we should mention before we get into things, associated with um, feminism and 
uh, what we might call today like uh, queerness, but certainly um, in the past few decades, she has become a symbol of, you know, um, just everything to do with women's rights, women's rights to their sexuality, women's rights to everything. And this is a really important aspect of her that is very connected to her history, but also it, it has a new shape. I think in that kind of colors, how we understand Artemis uh, and her association with what we might call female empowerment, although that's a little dated now, but just, I would say in the freedom to be your own, to fly your own queer flag and live your own queer life. Like I think Artemis is a very important figure for anyone. Um, it's not gender specific in that movement, in, in you know, involved in finding the, their way through that. So let's begin with the history. So what is clear from the different kind of scholarly sources on Artemis is that she was incredibly important in the ancient world, that she was worshiped in many sites all over the ancient Mediterranean. And that although we may experience her as this wild huntress who never quite wants to come inside, uh, in these many, many temples that she, you know, that she was this central kind of figure of religious life in many parts of the ancient Mediterranean. She was, as we know her today, the huntress associated with protecting women and children, independent, the wild, and so on. And yet to the ancient, she was also associated with some other things that may be a little bit surprising. Um, so at Sparta, she was concerned with war and battle and also um, male rights of initiation into adulthood. So this is where we get into, I think, what is the very heart of Artemis is that she is a goddess of thresholds, much like our Hecate, that she represents that threshold between one phase of being in the world and another phase of being in the world. And while today we may experience that as a rewilding in ancient times, this was actually also associated with like becoming a proper citizen, you know, going through these initiatory rites going from childhood, from adolescence to adulthood, you know, mostly for women, but also at least in Sparta associated with men. So this, to me, it seems contradictory, you know, because these were like some of the rights to her about going from uh, being a young girl to being a gynae or a proper woman. Like it was about being a proper, like state sanctioned woman. So it's like, how does this goddess, who even to the ancients was associated with the hunt and wildness, like what is this business that she also helped you become a proper citizen of, of the empire? It's it's really, there's a lot to Artemis to take in, isn't there? And, and you know, 
sorry go ahead oh no no i didn't mean to interrupt you but yeah it's like one of those things where when i was looking at this earlier today i was thinking about how it seems very contradictory right that she of the wild would be like okay now i want you to be fully tamed and i almost like something pinged for me as you were talking about how i almost feel like maybe that is part of the explanation for why you know and we'll probably talk about this more but you know how she's thought of as like this also a woman killer right mm -hmm. and so you know maybe like she's culling the wild parts of ourselves you know but yeah I don't know something just struck me with that and how interesting that is because to me like she seems like she would stand for everything against becoming a fully tamed woman right so yeah really interesting to think about it is um, and, you know, we can speculate about it, but of course, there's no way we'll actually know how the ancients navigated this duality and what it might have meant to them. And I think your point about culling the wildness, you know, it's like she who protects childbirth and children is also she who um, can interfere and bring about a miscarriage and or, you know, infanticide and all of those other things that in ancient myths Artemis is associated with while being Chorotrophus, the protector, and, and Aletheia, you know, the midwife. So it's like this duality. And I think you might have hit something there by saying, it's like, of course, she who is most wild would be venerated uh, in a civilized way more than any other goddess because she is this duality. So she's wild and we're going to build all these temples to her. She's wild and uncontrollable, even by her father, Zeus, in the mythology. Um, so, yes, so she is the goddess who is going to abide with these rites of passage into becoming a respectable citizen. It's really interesting to think about, like, all of these dualities that exist in Artemis. And then we also wanted to mention um, Diana. So Diana is really fascinating to me in that she's this continuation of Artemis. So the Romans adapted Diana from Artemis, from the Greeks, like they did with so many goddesses and gods and aspects of culture. And Diana remains really, really important through the Romans but the Romans got into a lot of gods and goddesses so I don't she wasn't kind of the she didn't have that top priority that she did for a long period um, in ancient age Asia Minor which is modern day Turkey and parts of Greek Greece and the other kind of associated areas but it's still this interesting thing like Diana is associated with the night, the moon, we're going to talk more about her in a bit. And all of this business, like as the, if you're thinking about, like we're talking about a thousand, 1500 years in history, by the time we get into the Roman era, it's the culture is becoming much more uh, Apollonic or much more focused on the sun God or the sky God. And like Artemis's veneration as she becomes Diana, it starts to go down that path where it becomes less and less important, the lunar, the night, the wild. So it's all of this interesting 
kind of cultural progression that Artemis Diana goes through. And now here we are all like, you know, 2000 years later, trying to like reclaim Artemis from the feminist movement to, uh, you know, like Victorian writing and about Artemis and so on. It's like, we're still really compelled by Artemis today um, in, in ways that might look different from how the ancients venerated. Obviously we've got no temples to Artemis to go to, but that spirit of the wild that is mysterious and lunar and how to navigate that in a world that is so solar and sky God focused and so focused on productivity. I don't know. There's just so much there. Kristen, you got any mm -hmm. thoughts? Yeah, no, I'm just thinking about this symbiotic relationship between Artemis and Apollo and Apollo being like a sun God and this God of culture and civilization and Artemis being a moon goddess, you know, with like wildness and whatnot. And I'm thinking about what happens when wildness brushes up against civilization, right? right. Like when um, there's an imbalance and I'm thinking about, you know, like that duality of like, um, like what does it take to maintain that balance like if if the wilderness is self-sustaining and if artemis is representative of the wilderness then it would make sense that she carries that duality of like being a protector of children and women and the innocent and stuff but then also like this fierce huntress right right and i think we should probably talk for a minute about like her origin story which mm -hmm. is that her mother leto was pregnant and was in big nobody would it's a little bit like mary giving birth to jesus like no one leto wouldn't let wasn't allowed to have the babies anywhere because she was in trouble i believe it was hera is that that's yeah. right isn't it may hera was mad at leto for getting impregnated by zeus um and so they ended up leto being pregnant with the twins apollo and artemis the moon and the sun ended up on this island, uh, Delos, off the coast of Greece. And that was where Leto's like set to to have these twins. And Artemis was born first. And being Artemis, um, she helped birth Apollo. So we have that symbolism of what is like lunar and intuitive and mysterious birthing what is rational and structured and of the sun. And of course, like, Although gender roles are very evolving in the times in which we live at the time, this is, there was a division between the, the feminine and the masculine that was pretty entrenched in society, even though there were, of course, variants of this. But in that story, it is this division between what is feminine and what is masculine. And both Artemis and Apollo became incredibly important um, in the ancient world. And... I don't know, there's a divisiveness, like, you know, and how do we heal, like you said, what happens when the wild brushes into the civilized, mm -hmm. um, who wins? And I think a lot about where we're at in terms of like the destruction of the planet, like when the wild mm -hmm. is so violated, um, mm -hmm. you know, that it comes back with a vengeance. And I think that's very Artemisian in a sense. You know, that the wild will fight back. You can push the wild so far and then it'll come back. So it's like this war between Apollo and Artemis mm -hmm. um, in terms of that. 
Can I just add to like, I'm thinking about also how, you know, Lido didn't have anywhere to go. And so she ended up on this like kind of, you know, remote deserted island and Artemis was the firstborn and how she's also, especially as Diana considered like this guardian of women in the sense of like offering them sanctuary. Right. And I find that really interesting because I think about how, I mean, even when we think about the story of Medea or, you know, any other story where a woman has done wrong and is banished, where does she go? You know, she, or, mm -hmm. or Circe, you know, she goes to the wild. She goes to this place of Artemis. And I think that's really interesting to think about too, you know, where it's like, she offers this place where she can be protective of women too. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, that's really standing out for me right now as well. What's thinking for me too, May? I'm sorry to interrupt. Is this the the whole thing about Artemis being virginal and like not being tamed and not being tamed by any man? Like it it's, goes right in line with what you're saying. And that sense of sanctuary. I think you really hit on something there. That because Artemis was chaste. I mean, we can talk more about that too, about what that actually might have meant back then. Um, mm -hmm. But this idea that. For women to find sanctuary, they have to separate from civilization. Mm -hmm. That that society isn't society is dangerous for women in many ways, right? Um, and even in, of course, like the the birth story of you know Zeus attacking Leto. You know the whole typical thing with Zeus. We've told mm -hmm. the story. I mean, he did it so many times in the myths, um, but. You know, and that the sanctuary is this place that's removed, whether you're Medea or Circe or Leto finding refuge, it was to go to these islands. And like, I think geographically, you know, the, these are actual islands mm -hmm. in the Mediterranean that were featured in these myths. And it's, you know, it's so interesting to think about, even in the telling of the story, they were saying, oh, no, no, women, when they need sanctuary, you go you go away, you go away from the polis, you go away from the city state. And this will be, I mean, even things like the, the you know, like with um, Lesbos and the Amazon, you know, all of that business, it's always like the women are on these islands. And even in the Celts, right, there's like the, the island of women. So there's something about the need for women to have safety in the wild. It's, it's really mm -hmm. fascinating to think. And I think about, you know, there's another story of Artemis where I didn't put any, any slides up for this, but it just came to mind now. There's another story where her and her nymphs, so she often had attendants. Her and her nymphs are bathing and a hunter comes along and Artemis is not pleased to have her, you know, her special self-care wild time interrupted by this hunter. And again, of her, her, her fierceness and her wrath, that she had, you know, she she has the hunter, I think, eaten by his own dogs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was his name, uh, Acteon or something. Acteon, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the, so it's like, oh, Artemis is associated with deer and dogs. Well, it's not this, just this nice association with them. It's that, you know, there is this aggressive side to Artemis as the huntress and deers become food. And the dogs become weapons. It, it's, it can be really, I guess, challenging for me to think about 
those aspects, especially like 20 or 30 years ago. Now I'm more comfortable with this kind of duality of all things, but yeah, don't piss Artemis off. She'll get the dogs to eat you. I mean, that's quite right. a- <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and there's a savage side to nature, right? There, I mean, <laughs> savage means wild. I mean, you know, and so we think about that and we think about, you know, it. I think that sometimes in our modern world, like, there's this really strong pull to kind of like personify nature as benevolence and all giving and, you know, a place where everything lives in harmony, but, you know, that's not reality. It's rough out there. It's rough out there. Right. Right. And I also think about, you know, going back to the whole women leaving, you know, society, it was like, sometimes they left by choice because it was safer for them to not be in society. And sometimes they were like, they were deemed unworthy to be in society too. So like, you know, and, and to have, like, it's just interesting to me how strong the connection between women and the wild has been through the ages and in so many different cultures, that untamedness. Yeah. Right. And how dangerous, you know, some people perceive Mm -hmm. that to be very dangerous right? and others perceive it to be like a safe Harbor, Mm -hmm. you know, even kind of getting into the main ads with Dionysus, you know, it's that same kind of story of wild women, um, who are dangerous and also they are finding their power mm-hmm. it's, it's such a, a theme of going back to the wild and you even see it like in in popular culture today like with Glennon Doyle's book Untamed mm-hmm. you know this idea of we need to become liberated from the shackles of our of being so tamed So we wanted to spend a couple of minutes just talking about some of the more fascinating aspects of historical Artemis. So I put up the Orphic hymn to Artemis. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you can find it online and in other sources if you want to read the Orphic hymn to Artemis. But we get a lot of kind of key points about how Artemis was portrayed in literature, such as this hymn. And also in um, plays by Euripides in particular and others, this Artemis, who is very different than the Artemis who was worshipped as, you know, one of the leading deities in the ancient Mediterranean. So here he tells the story of Artemis. Um, Maybe I will just read it. That might be easier. I'll read it. I sing of Artemis, whose shafts are of gold, who cheers on the hounds, the pure maiden, shooter of stags, who delights in archery, own sister to Apollo with a golden sword. Over the shadowy hills and windy peaks, she draws her golden bow, rejoicing in the chase, and sends out glorious shafts, grievous shafts. The tops of the high mountains tremble, and the tangled wood echoes awesomely with the outcry of beasts earthquakes and the sea also where fishes shoal but the goddess with a bold heart turns every way destroying the race of wild beasts and when she is satisfied and has cheered her heart this huntress who delights in arrows slackens her supple bow and goes to the great house of her dear brother phoebus apollo to the rich land of delphi there to order the lovely dance of the muses and graces There she hangs up her curved bow and her arrows and heads and leads the dances, gracefully arrayed, while all they utter their heavenly voice, singing how neat-ankled Leto 
bear children supreme among immortals, both in thought and deed. So in this depiction, Artemis is just out there hunting. Like she's just doing it for the sake of the glory of the hunt kind of energy. And then she takes a break, which reminds me more of like a masculine story. I don't know, May, do you have any thoughts on, I'm just thinking of traditional myths and folktales. And it sounds like if I didn't know this was about Artemis, I would think it was some like great Celtic or Norse hunter being. Right. I was just thinking that, you know, like a medieval, you know, like a medieval um, Celtic kind of story, right? Like, you know, I, I was almost picturing, you know, this pompous king who goes out and he's out on his lands and he's just killing things for the sport of it. And then he comes home and he's like, dance maidens dance for me, you know? And, um, you know, and that brings to me mind, you know, and this kind of came to mind too when we were talking about Sparta is how like, like Athena and like Hecate and like Hermes, um, Artemis has these very like non-gender conforming aspects to her as well. Um, so I don't know. It's always one of those things where she is so very strongly identified as women and was even like a badge of a whole women's spirituality movement. But yet, you know, there's that again I think and maybe this is why because there's that freedom from you know these shackles of what's expected from a woman especially in this time when things were so very delineated so you know not only is she a bloodthirsty you know killer but then she's also like and I also delight in dancing maidens you know (laughs) and I, I take my rest and I delight in the beauty of life right and so I think that's another real interesting duality to consider as well So kind of building upon this difference between the Artemis that was worshipped historically and how Artemis was depicted as this blood, like you said, a bloodthirsty killer who delights in maidens, by the way, she takes her leave. She takes a break, Um, you know, and, and it's just, it's not just in the Orphic hymn. It's all throughout. And this is a really great paper. Um, called the the gods of ancient greece it's actually a a book like an edited book and there's a whole chapter on how artemis was transformed from a goddess of the outdoors to a city goddess because like you mentioned sparta and numerous too many to mention uh cult locations of her where there were temples so artemis bloodthirsty killer of the orphic hymn um, also how hesiod described her she becomes this figure who is so venerated and she's also one of the oldest greek deities that you know her origins stretch back across the mist of times even though we have like the birth story myth but it's likely that story was adopted from an older story that kind of regaled the tale of the sun god and the moon goddess and however in this paper that I'm mentioning and other sources, you know, they talk about that in literature in these times that she was either this savage killer of children, beast, look out, Artemis is coming, um, or she was really marginalized and not seen as important. While at the same time in religious life, she was very much the epicenter. It's, it's, it's fascinating 
you know, there's no kind of solution to making sense out of this. It's just something that I think, like you mentioned, May, about in many ways, she is a total gender nonconformist. And yet during second wave feminism, she became a spirit of that movement that was about women reclaiming their power and equality. But Artemis, you know, was not any kind, maybe, like you said, maybe that's because she broke all the gender norms. And maybe there's something to that even like 2,500 years ago, you know, having that figurehead who completely thumbs their nose up at gender norms. Maybe that was something that really resonated and it contributed to her popularity in her temples. I don't know. I don't know. Kristen, you got any thoughts on this? Um, I don't know. I tend to agree with both of you. I'm still thinking about this. Um, let me figure out how to say what I'm trying to say. I'm still thinking about this um thing that May brought up about um women like being being ostracized or banished to the woods. And I'm completely off topic, but this is a thought that's in my mind right now. And about um how the darkness can be a cloak and mm -hmm. people fear what they don't know or don't understand and how that plays into all of this. Oh, I like that. And maybe in some way, having all these temples to Artemis and all of these festivals and all of these rituals, you know, there were even like the, the rituals of the girls at Braun were, who would dress up as bears, mm -hmm. um, you know, so maybe all of this is about trying to control that wildness in a sense. Yeah. Um, while also bringing it into mainstream culture. I don't know. Like I'm a thinking lot. about like Lord of Misrule type of things, right? Oh, like yeah, yeah. giving that space for like, okay, let's get it out of our system. And then, and then you're going to transform into the tamed woman that's fit to be in society. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, because you know, it, it deserves noting that although there's a lot of existing information about these ancient temples of Artemis and and quite a bit known about some of the rituals like we can speculate most of it and what was truly part of the mystery remains a mystery just like at Eleusis at Eleusis mm -hmm. they didn't write this down because it was meant to stay a mystery so it say like we know what was meant to be known not what was truly part of the mystery cult for Artemis in the different locations mm -hmm. I'm so, smiling because I'm like, I'm listening to the three of us trying to wrangle an explanation for this thing that is inherently like mysterious. Right. right? <laughs> and we're even calling this conversation, you know, the wild mysteries of the moon. It's like, and this is, it's going to remain a mystery. What really went on in these temples and why Artemis was so popular. Okay. Um, here again, we're going with more Artemis's kind of, two of wands moments um, are the two Artemises that we know of from the ancient world. One, of course, is the Artemis that we're all familiar with, the huntress with her bow and arrow, um, that depiction of her. And then there is the depiction of what's known as the Ephesian or the Artemis of Ephesus or Ephesos, um, which is in modern, which was in ancient Caria, which is modern day Turkey. And um, if you aren't familiar with that image, 
it's one that has really compelled and puzzled me for at least two decades. Um, and interestingly, they are both on display at the Vatican Museum. So we could get like this. Is, there's just levels to all of this that we could dive into. Um, but May, maybe you can offer up some thoughts on this Artemis of Ephesus, who is, her, she's cloaked. Uh, her arms are extended in greeting or connection. She's crowned. She has all kinds of animals and different parts of animals in the Zodiac on her regalia. There's so much to take in with her. What are your thoughts on this Artemis? Yeah, like, so we were kind of chatting a little bit before the recording, but um, one thing that I always think is funny is, you know, they talk about how stiff she is and how kind of wooden and how, you know, she's very kind of restrained in this getup. And, you know, she has all these things hanging from her that are many breasts. And, you know, so she's definitely a mother figure. And she does kind of remind me of the figures of Kybele, who is the great mother of that kind of same, re you know, Anatolia and that same kind of region. But when I look at her, um, you know, and I think about all the animals that are attached to her clothing and, you know, these things that have been called breasts that might not be breasts, you right, that might be eggs or might be other symbols of um, fertility, like bulls testicles, I think they talk about. Um, it could be, you know, drops of amber or other resins. I mean, it could just be like some rich ornaments, right, that just attest to her power and connection to the natural world. And I was mentioning to Kristen and Cindy that when I look at her, I think about how like when I'm out in the woods and I take time to kind of go into a trance state, like I can also become very stiff. And I put my arms out in that same kind of gesture where it looks like I might be welcoming other people, but it's really like I'm just kind of like sending out myself to connect with the world around me and so I almost think about like this ornament as not only being like kind of a connection to the natural world that she has but it's almost kind of like her protection as well like maybe some type of armor or like shield that she's that's really like a part of her and how it's all kind of connected so I don't know I, I have a really very different take on it I guess um, than the traditional take on this figurine it's, and I'm glad that you you have that experience because, like I said, this figure on the surface, she can appear so different than the Artemis that we're used to seeing. And I really appreciate your notes. I also think this is a good time to kind of insert that scholastic thinking about Artemis is really evolving. That, and there is like a leg, I think, between what maybe we read about like in more popular culture and where scholars are at in understanding a lot in the classical world, but specifically this Artemis of Ephesus. And you mentioned for years and years, uh, you know, people said that these were breasts on her, um, on the front of her and, you know, more modern, thoughtful, academic theorizing about what they are like you said are they bull's testicles are they amber are they honey like this is, they are not breasts and that was looking at it through the lens of like the typical victorian white straight male um kind of trying to sexualize artemis and i think that's an interesting note too 
because we see that in many sources that even though Artemis in one sense is this virgin chaste goddess that almost as the unobtainable one she gets hypersexualized it's right. very complicated um in turn once we get into victorian thinking about artemis but we want i have a few a few things more we want to say about artemis as the great mother at ephesus one thing um i'll just read this passage from this article Artemis of Ephesus may or may not have had many breasts, a debatable point, but she certainly has two faces, two bodies in both iconography and literature. One body is that of the traditional virgin, the huntress of myth. The other body, despite the sweet virginal face resembling that of her outdoor namesake, seems to belong to an ancient Anatolian goddess. And you mentioned um, Kybele. In one form, Artemis skirts over the mountains in a light tunic. In the other, she stands rigidly imprisoned. And this is where we kind of say, well, is she actually rigidly imprisoned? Or is she emblematic of like that stillness of the great mother in that moment? Uh, there's so much to take in about Artemis of Ephesus. Um, another thing we want to mention is that the temple of Artemis at Ephesus was one of the wonders of the ancient world. I found this uh, illustration, I think, from the Renaissance depicting it. Of course, she's called Diana here. Um, so this was a really, really important site, so much so that the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians in the Bible, in the New Testament, is complaining that he can't evangelize the citizens to Christianity because of their devotion to Artemis. So Artemis was so important in the ancient world. She's actually even in the Bible. I don't know. There's a lot to take. And they, I think there's that wild spirit again, you know, even Artemis of the temple uh, when, you know, the, uh, when Christianity came calling, there was a resistance and a larger movement, of course, the, the resistance between paganism and Christianity. But I think I always thought that was interesting. And I remember having been raised in the church when I first heard about Artemis of Ephesus, I was like, oh, like Ephesians in the Bible? And and then it was like, oh, there's so much more to this. And now that we are going into, we're taking kind of a little turn in our discussion about Artemis. And I wanted us to talk about, oddly, one of my favorite stories about Artemis, which is a more bloodletting and maybe feminine power kind of complicated who knows what's take from this what you will <coughs> is this story of artemis and um epigenea or epimedea there's different spellings but we're going with Epi epigenea is what we're going to say today so in this story basically agamemnon if you know the story of Troy and Helen and all of this business, we're going to jump into the story at the point with Agamemnon. And Agamemnon wants to go and win the war and do all those things and needs help. But he pisses Artemis off in this myth. And she decides that the only way he's going to have any luck at all is if he sacrifices his daughter Iphigenia. And this is... Um, you know, in art, it's represented so many different ways as this 
here comes that savage Artemis killing a maiden again. Um, and what's the and again, there's that disparity between Artemis being worshipped in these temples at the time these myths were being uh, written down, and this Artemis who's killing Iphigenia. And, you know, apparently she was just pissed off at Agamemnon. Like some stories say there's a reason and others it's just, no, she just didn't like him. I don't know if you can relate to that. Um, but it's also, interestingly, there's some obscure references where this links, this Artemis Iphigenia business links up with um, Hecate. And that I couldn't find the source for this, but also that Sometimes this is seen as an origin story that Ephigenia actually becomes Hecate. And I couldn't find the actual myth where this story is told, but I remember reading it. I just don't have the source for that. So there's this whole thing with Artemis killing Ephigenia. And like, what can we take from this? And it for me... It parallels like your experience and others' experiences of in meditation and dreams and so on when Artemis shows up and shoots you and kind of kills you. Mm -hmm. and, and is that a liberation? Like was Iphigenia being liberated? And I think it, it's easy from our modern lens to kind of see it that way. I don't, what do you think, Kristen? I tend to believe that she was. And I mean, also, we talk about Artemis's fierce nature. And, you know, she had it out for Agamemnon. I mean, <laughs> like, she she put him through some things and, like, stopped his ships, if you know this story and all of this stuff. <laughs> but I think that, um, you know, if she she could have just killed him herself. Like, there there's something deeper there with Epigenea um, that... Yeah, I don't know. There's something deeper there. I don't. I don't think that she had him slay her. I think that she rescued her, and I think that that's alluded to um, in literature, right? Like it is. Yeah. And it also makes me think about how, like, you know, when we again going back to the whole sanctuary notion, right? Like, if we need to be liberated from the polis, right? We have to kind of shed that whole persona, that whole like civilized who we were, or even like, you know, I think about, you know, to draw a parallel to modern life, like the women who go into hiding after having interpersonal violence or domestic violence, mm -hmm. and they change their names, and they mm -hmm. go live in a totally different place. And, you know, I almost wonder if the, there's not some kind of parallel there where she was being rescued. And, you know, mm -hmm. they killed her off, right, to like, so that nobody would come looking for her. Right. So, yeah, that's interesting. And that type of liberation, you know, there are some stories that say that Ephigenia became a priestess of Artemis and kind of her companion and that we get into kind of a, well, was Ephigenia also Hecate or, you know, what is the association there? Because Artemis and Hecate are so closely associated in many ancient myths. So this is... Um, interesting and, and Euripides play that kind of gets into all of this is really really fascinating and there's all of these like Kristen alluded to there's all of these passages in that play that make it seem as though Iphigenia is not in fact dead that she's telling the story and it really you're right May like it just hearkens to you know victims of domestic violence who have to like die to their old selves and take on a whole new identity to find freedom. And I think 
Artemis would be a very important spirit for anybody going through that kind of transition as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting to me that at one of the temples of Artemis, um, Ephigenia actually has a tomb, even though she's a mythic figure. So the Ephigenia story was really important in the ancient world. And this, this fierce, murderous aspect of Artemis really demonstrates that part of their veneration of Artemis was she was so she also wouldn't do that to them. Right. Mm. The temple at Boron, and that's where the Ephigenia tomb is, it's spelled differently, so it can be Boron, B-R-A-U-R-O-N, or also spelled with a V instead of a B. It's really fascinating. There is so much known about this site. So if you're curious to know more about Epigenea and the worship, worship of ancient Artemis, Google that, have a look, or just Google like temples of Artemis. There is so much in that in the ancient world that exists today, and there's so much writing about all of this. Um, we did mention, of course, this association of Artemis with Hecate. I find this really interesting, and I've spent a lot of time researching this and thinking about it. Um, in some passages, they're used almost interchangeably. They're synchronized. They're put together, Artemis, Hecate. And, you know, there are theories that, like, Hecate was an aspect of Artemis that amplified, like, her governance over the liminal and magic and the intuitive and in all of this business. I find this so interesting. And of course, Hecate's name means like the far off one. And it harkens kind of to this idea of the archer. It's very much in the sense of what Artemis is. Mm -hmm. And also this business about, you know, like good girls, like Hecate was a really popular name in the ancient world, which I think layers onto this business about temples so many temples of artemis so this idea of like you're wild but you're becoming civilized you're a savage yet you're also delighting with the maidens you know this kind of fluidity going back and forth between these different aspects you're gender non-conforming but then you also govern childbirth um i think there's a lot to take in there in terms of trying to speculate about how the ancients thought about Artemis and Hecate together. And it's interesting to me too, because as someone who is a ritual guide and leads people through meditations, like your story, Kristen, like you, we weren't mm -hmm. talking about Artemis. Like it wasn't a ritual of Artemis. Right. Like Artemis will come through as a mm -hmm. very distinctive type, type of spirit. Mm -hmm. about reclaiming wildness and that she's often quite savage in her methodology. Like she's not a hand holder. Here, let me pass you a hanky. Right. Well, that comes back to this whole idea of um, her, you know, kind of like abiding at that threshold or that liminal space and even between like death and rebirth. And I think I kind of see her arrows as tools of transformation 
And like, I've, I've heard of this experience with several people that have been like shot or like bled out by Artemis. I'm thinking about epigenea and um, that sort of metaphorical death and rebirth kind of thing. Right. And that may be even what that myth is about. Mm-hmm. Right. So much to take in there. Of course, Artemis evolves into Diana for the Romans and linking Diana and Artemis and Hecate even more is their governance over three-way crossroads, which of course, Diana trivia was very important to the Romans. So we see like another kind of syncretization happening there. Hecate, of course, was known as Trivia. She of the three ways. So it's really interesting. And Diana of Aricia is one of the Dianas that really kind of captures me. I mean, they all capture me. But this idea of her as healer, and we haven't gotten into that aspect of Artemis yet. But, you know, in these temples and um, you know, specifically talking about Diana of Aricia here, like this goddess who was savage and fierce and shot arrows and did all these things. She was also the goddess that you petitioned for healing. Mm-hmm. And I find that so like, that's my experience that healing is often really fierce and it makes like it makes intuitive sense to me that you would find great healing and you would petition and you know offer different talismans and whatnot to this goddess who could also kill you if she didn't like you i don't know may what are your thoughts on this aspect of artemis diana's healer so the last thing you said just like really popped something into my head which is why I kind of laughed but I was like you know the same could be said about modern medicine right if we have like a doctor who's unstable or careless or you know um, even you know some of the pharmaceuticals we use like if you take too much or you take it at the wrong time or with the wrong thing like all of these there's healing has always my point is healing has always been kind of a dual-edged sword right that um too much poison can kill you or too much medicine can become poison basically, or, you know, so I think there, this is a very, um, this is a very kind of obvious way of like acknowledging that, you know, that there's always that danger in any healing. And then the other thing that was kind of coming to me was the idea of like the shamanic dismemberment. And that kind of goes back to Iphigenia too, where it's like the old you has to die to be put back together into a new you, right? A new whole you. And so to me, that's really interesting to think about as well, you know, how we can go out into the woods and lose who we are, um, you know, or we can go into these metaphorical woods, like in meditation or shamanic journeying or other kinds of ritual um, acts and really lose who we are and then come back and be more ourselves than we ever were, right? Right. Yeah. Much to take in. Um, And we've mentioned quite a few times, but I just want to say again, this associating with with, um, Artemis, Diana, and of course, Hecate, as well as either Chorotrophus to the Greeks or Diana Lucina, who was a guardian of women in childbirth. So, you know, we're seeing this, like you said so brilliantly about medicine, even today, modern allopathic medicine, pharmaceuticals have all kinds of risks 
um, surgery has all kinds of risks and yet we go into it. So I don't know if this is going to sound like too critical of kind of the more light and love movement, but I think when we remove the risks, the savageness, the killer aspects of the goddess or healing in general, because you brought up my shamanic dismemberment, like when we remove that, we really remove the opportunity for true healing. If we're saying that healing is only going to be light and love and whatever that is, that it like it creates a, a cycle of disempowerment compared yeah. to like yeah go go for it may oh no i was just gonna say like yeah i mean i think in a completely separate conversation we kind of talked a little bit about this like how in order to heal like sometimes you have to give up something that is part of your identity right like you have to give up like i am an able-bodied person who can go skiing for example or i have to give up I am a victim of trauma and that identification with that. Like I have to lay that down on the altar of healing and walk away from it. And then it's like, I have to figure out who am I now without that. Right. And that space that can be really like fearful, you know, and we talk about like the dark, wild mysteries of Artemis in terms of connecting to her and experiences with her for our own personal journey it can be terrifying what is lunar and dark and this goddess who shoots arrows into us. And it can be a lot easier to just turn the lights on and say, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do this deeper, more shamanic shadow healing work. I'm going to stay in my comfy place. Even if I'm numb and unhappy and miserable, it looks easier at the time than facing Artemis. But as someone who is on the other side of that, I will say, let Artemis shoot you. You'll be better for it. Don't fear, you know, don't fear becoming Ephigenia. You might just become sovereign and free and empowered Powerful. in ways that you, you never imagined. If you yeah. just allow that to happen, to get the wild back into you. We're linking this discussion with, the chapter uh, called Scotia, the darkness in entering Hecate's cave. And there's a lot of notes that I want to share, but we're almost at a time. One thing I will say is it's this idea that when Artemis comes through to us in our personal encounters with her, we're going into the deeper unconscious. You know, if we kind of put aside the history, the mythology, and just have this experience of the wild woman, the gender nonconformist, she who can be savage and also the healer, that when the archer comes to you, it's going to unlock the unconscious and something deeper. And it can be, you know, I've often said that Hecate scares the life into us. I think Artemis, like she does shoot the wild back into us, even our own savageness. Like even our own anger, she can reawaken all of that. So all of this is to say, you know, Artemis is a lovely spirit and, you know, kind of taken at the uh, surface level. She can really be just straightforward, empowering. Let's go. I'm not going to take any more graph. Um, but at a deeper level, Artemis really sh can shake us to the core. And she can just be so powerful. I mean, I know she's shaken me to the core many times in my life. 
I, we wanted just to finish just briefly mentioning how Artemis has kind of been depicted, let's say, since the Victorian era to today. So I grabbed just a couple of books on from the bookshelf that talk about Artemis as this kind of roaming um, game warden. This, this is Encyclopedia of Goddesses and Heroines, which is a fairly popular book from the last few decades. And I like this passage. It calls her a game warden. She killed anyone who hunted pregnant beasts or newborns. She not only controlled death, she ruled reproduction as well. Um, and so this just kind of reinforces a lot of this and also talks about the myth of uh, Orion and uh, the story of Opus, how if in this particular story, uh, when she was raped, that Artemis's wrath came. So there's a, a lot in kind of modern popular writing and thinking about Artemis that really reinforces like her savageness, but her savageness is not just for blood sport. It's a savageness that's to protect the vulnerable. And I think that's really important to mention. Um, and then another book of the last 40 years or so is Goddesses in Every Woman by Jean Shinoda Bolin. Uh, and in here, this is an interesting note, and we were talking about this earlier today, like this rewilding phase when Artemis comes back to us at middle age. And I do still think like there's part of me that's always going to be like an Artemis gal, a little wild, a little nonconformist, all of those things that I, I am. But I also sometimes mourn the loss of more of that in me. I don't know, May, what do you think about the Artem when Artemis comes at middle age and pokes you with one of those arrows? Yeah, I definitely am feeling this pretty acutely lately. Um, luckily, right now I have I I do have a male partner right now, and I'm thinking about this passage in particular where, you know, um, Jean Shinoda Bolin kind of talks about how this woman, you know, would kind of put to, put away her whole like identity just to keep the man in her life like loving her, and it's so funny because I was literally just having this conversation with my partner yesterday, um, and how, you know he is not like that but so many partners male and female that I've had have been like that where they just expected me to be this person that I wasn't and how I gave up so much of my wildness and I know some of that probably would have come with age and just experience anyway but like how I really you know like there's that part of me that does mourn that and I really have been feeling the pull of Artemis or like the more feral kind of you know human you know like just that it's more deep than like I want to run away in the woods and not have responsibilities right although that's definitely part of it right but it's just this like I want to be unapologetically myself and still be worthy of love and still be worthy of you know in Artemis's case like she was still worthy of worship even though she didn't conform to you know the polis kind of <laughs> idea of what womanhood was right and so yeah, I've been really, this has been something that's been weighing heavily on my heart and mind lately, to be honest. Kristen, where are you at with this Artemis at middle age? May, I think you hit the nail on the head and everything you said resonates really, really strongly with me as well. Um, I don't know. I think I am on the cusp of a rewilding and I am going through this thing where like, uh, I mean, if I'm fully honest, like I'm starting to contemplate 
play the nature of my decade-long marriage and like my career choices and like you know how can I reinvent myself or like you know stand in my most like authentic truth you know so Artemis is yeah definitely working on me right now she's working on you she's hitting you with those arrows yeah um we also wanted to briefly mention a book that certainly was really influential for me, which is Mysteries of the Dark Moon by Demetra George, who is widely known, of course, as a traditional astrologer, an amazing astrologer. But she also wrote this book about goddesses. And in this book, she links Hecate Artemis with Selene. And we're going to be talking about Selene in a future conversation. But this, I, I wanted to read this little passage because in this passage... Um, Demetra George and other authors like back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, they made this association with Hecate Artemis and Selene, that maiden mother crone association. And like that Artemis is coming in, I guess, in the maiden zone here. Um, and what does that even mean like I you know as someone and I think the two of you can relate to this as someone who kind of grew up in like modern feminism modern paganism and was exposed to this idea of the maiden mother crone and kind of saw Artemis in the maiden zone and then Hecate becomes the crone and I was never clear on where Sel Selene is the mother um, in the full moon and Artemis is like the crescent new moon that she is like that vitality, that energy of the maiden. And I think this has been so influential for me personally, this idea of like Artemis's vitality. And I think as we age, speaking of Artemis at middle age, I don't know. I know I miss a lot of that Artemis vitality. I had like, 30 years ago. I don't know if you all are missing some of that. Oomph. I could use one of those Artemis arrows that, that returned me to some kind of maiden energy. Right. Five hour energy arrows. <laughs> <laughs> and it also, of course, reinforces her association with the moon and, you know, those mysteries of all that is lunar and intuitive and non-rational and creative, all of those beautiful things that we love. Okay, so we are finishing with a couple of sources that are really important to me personally, like linking back and lo, these many decades um, being involved in paganism and witchcraft. Two books that I actually love, although I have may say some critical things about them, but I think both of the books, so we're talking about Drawing Down the Moon by Margot Adler and Aradia or the Gospel of the Witches by Charles Leland. Um, and I would say these are like on the front piece of the bookshelf, but there are countless books that kind of flow out of both of these works. Um, Drawing Down the Moon is such a pivotal book. It's such a turning point book in paganism, in witchcraft, in the women's movement, in many of the things that are part of my identity. So I love, love this book. And I, it, 
you know, I remember I used to have a copy of it and it was like my Bible for a while. I don't know if that makes sense to you, Meg. Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking about that. I was like, I so strongly identified with this book. And it's funny now because even looking at this little passage, I'm like, I have so many problems with even this little passage. And I honestly, I feel like it's probably been at least 20 years since I've read a lot of these books that you've mentioned, like the Demetra George one and, you know, the Jean Shinoda Bolin one. Um, it's probably been 20 years at least since I've read those. I have them all still. They're all on my bookshelf still. And I consider them, like you said, just they are definitely a part of, I mean, if nothing else, they were such a part of revitalizing the neo-pagan movement and reinvigorating the idea of magic in our modern life and, you know, intertwining all of that with feminism and the importance of women's experiences and their, you know, um, um, I'm drawing a blank on the word, um, their like oh gosh why can't I think of the word I want to say religious spiritual there we go I couldn't think of the word for some reason but you know women's spiritual lives had not ever really been I think um set aside and talked about outside of like this very narrow prescription within Christianity before and um just to even you know all the faulty scholarship or conclusions or whatever aside or you know respectability paganism as I like to call it right. um <laughs> You know, they were pivotal in stirring, I mean, you know, Leland in the Victorian era and Margot Adler in, you know, the 80s. Well, I think that book actually came out in the late 70s, I want to say. But I mean, I think I read like a future edition, like maybe the 10th or 20th anniversary edition that I had in the 90s. But I mean, it was just like so pivotal in stirring the cauldron and getting all of these um ideas back into the collective unconscious and bringing it up and bubbling it up to the the surface again so if for nothing else I have to bow down to that <laughs> you know and then there is the Aradia or the gospel of the witches which to me felt like such a dangerous book I don't know May did it feel dangerous to you like when do you have an association with this little book in all honesty, I came to that book very late, and I don't have as much of a connection to that one particularly as some of the others. So if you're not familiar with Arady or the Gospel of the Witches, Leyland, who I think the book was published at the end of the 19th century, so the late 1800s, and in it he purported to have interviewed like a, his, uh, a secret mystery tradition um, uh, lineage of witches strega as they've come to be known in italy and they this is a, basically the story their origin story and it tells this of this union between diana and her brother lucifer the god of the sun and of the moon so of course diana is the moon and lucifer in this case is a sky god a sun god and not who you might have heard he was from the christians um who was so proud of his beauty and who for his pride was driven from paradise. And then Diana had by her brother, a daughter to whom they gave the name Aradia and that Aradia, I love this. And there's so many different things I've heard over the years. And I used to kind of really, I wouldn't have said I was like a strict Dianic witchcraft, but I certainly traveled like in Dianic witchcraft circles for quite some time because this idea of Aradia was 
really, really something that had a lot of beauty and power. Mm -hmm. And I think really, when you say in the 90s and into even the the early 2000s, it was really one of the kind of driving forces in the pagan and witch world. Absolutely. And for me too, like when I did come to this book and kind of come to, and I was very much involved in Dianic witchcraft, um, especially from the feminist um, kind of women's sanctuary kind of point of view, right? But for me too, it was also kind of like a class manifesto because right. it was like liberating, you know, the lower classes from the oppression of the upper classes as well, like having that piece in that. And so that always spoke to me too once I did come to that one. And I think, you know, as Artemis, as this protector, this goddess of the people, um, you know, certainly like in that book, it's so beautiful. If you haven't read it, I recommend reading it because it's so beautiful and it's entirely enchanting. Um, but this idea that Aradia comes, the daughter of Diana, you know, comes to liberate the poor. And I think that just takes us back, you know, to some of the oldest historical aspects of Artemis, like being Chorotrophus and so on, that there is always this connection of Artemis with anybody who is kind of marginalized, anyone who's pushed towards her by society. Maybe that's how we can encounter her because we don't fit in in the mainstream and we're kind of pushing outside of the mainstream. Um, either we're here by choice because the mainstream doesn't work for us or we've been pushed out for not conforming to the mainstream, that that's where we can meet Artemis on the edge of the wild and mm -hmm. yeah. dance like with Kristen her. Kristen said, yeah, that bumping up against like our civilized nature is bumping up against what's still wild within us, right? Mm -hmm. Well, like you said, and to touch on what I was saying earlier, I'm thinking about like, you know, stand in sovereign in our own wildness and our own darkness and like you know what comes with maturity is like learning those parts of ourselves and like stand in sovereign is like, like that straight shooter and you know and like knowing what you're aiming for and like knowing you know what you want totally does that make sense that makes absolutely sense. Yeah. yeah and i think as witches you know this spirit of artemis diana hecate there's also that whole connection with witchcraft, mm -hmm. you know, that really in the gospel, according, you know, the, the gospel of the witches really kind of brings that to the forefront and, you know, looking at kind of the historical record, typically it's Hecate that kind of gets assigned all the witchcraft business in works of fiction, like in the myths and the plays and so on that exist. And Artemis stays in the wild but I think they're really intertwined. And I think that's part of why historically Artemis and Hecate were so linked. And, you know, even of course, adding in Diana, Diana trivia and so on as Diana mm -hmm. to the Romans kind of takes on a lot of the aspects of Hecate being associated with witchcraft and pharmacaea um, mm -hmm. and really evolves into this goddess who takes on all things wild from magic to nature to things that can't be controlled. Um, and she is just lovely. And I hope you are inspired to connect to Artemis Diana. However, she comes to you, watch out for the arrows. She has the wild mysteries on her heels, whether it's magic or ritual or dreams, she will shoot the life back into you. 
Thanks so much, everyone. We'll see you next time.